The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. In a clash that pits the rights of same-sex couples against free speech, the conservative justices on the Supreme Court appear ready to side with a website designer who says she has a free speech right to refuse to create websites for same-sex weddings because of her Christian faith. Liberal Justice Sonia Sotomayor said that a decision allowing the designer to turn away same-sex couples would be a first. This would be the first time in the court's history, correct, that it would say that a business open to the public, a commercial business open to the public, serving the public, that it could refuse to serve a customer based on race, sex, religion, uh, or sexual orientation. But several of the conservative justices focused on the designer's stated intention to create customized wedding sites and the difference between businesses engaged in expression and ones simply selling products. Here's Justice Brett Kavanaugh. How do you characterize website designers? Uh, are they more like the restaurants and the jewelers and the tailors, or are they more like uh, you know, the publishing houses and the other uh, free speech analogs? My guest is constitutional law expert Michael Dorf, a professor at Cornell Law School. Under Colorado law, a business may not refuse to serve individuals because of their sexual orientation. How is freedom of speech involved? So the petitioner argues that her web design business is inherently expressive because when clients come to her and say they want her to design a wedding website, she puts various creative efforts into it to fashion a bespoke website. And in so doing, she is creating speech, thus speaking. And if the government tells her she must create same-sex wedding websites, it is forcing her to espouse a message, the tacit approval of same-sex marriage, that is inconsistent with her beliefs. Tell us how the justices responded to this claim. Some of them were skeptical of whether there really was any expression at all here. I think Justice Sonia Sotomayor was the most skeptical. She wanted to know how this is speech by Laurie Smith, the owner of the web design company, given that it's essentially for the couple, right? Part of the point is that it's not speech endorsing same-sex marriage at all. It's simply saying things like, here's the date of the wedding, here's the venue, here are directions, here's a registry, here's how we met, etc. So there's skepticism that it's the web designer's 
speech at all. And then there's a question of whether it's speech that endorses this particular message. So that's at one end. At the other end of the spectrum, you had Justice Alito and some of the other justices who seemed to just accept that, of course, this is expressive. And they gave some hypothetical examples where you pretty clearly would have expression. For example, you know, if you had to put on the website, I, the web designer, believe that God blesses this marriage, or even just God blesses this marriage. I think some of the justices had the view that there certainly is expression here, and it could be understood as expression endorsing same-sex marriage. And then the question is, does the state get to override that because they have a public accommodations law? And what about the argument they're making about expressive works? Oh, this is hardly new. So a very similar case was before the Supreme Court in 2017, also from Colorado. That case involved a baker, the so-called Masterpiece Cake Shop case. And there, too, the business owner objected to providing services for a same-sex wedding on the ground that he opposed same-sex marriage. In that case, the court had before it the same argument it has here, but it also had a claim of religious discrimination. And a majority of the court decided the case on that ground without addressing the free speech issue. But I should say that these arguments go back as far as the 1960s, when Congress enacted the 1964 Civil Rights Act that includes Title II with a public accommodations provision. And some business owners during the sort of tail end of the Jim Crow era said that it would be inconsistent with either their religious or speech views to serve African-American customers either at all or in an integrated setting. And the claims then were pretty quickly rejected by the courts. The justices are considering only her free speech arguments, not her religious rights arguments. Did the justices jettison the religious rights part of the case so they'll be able to say, the conservative justices, well, this is free speech, not free exercise of religion against same-sex marriage? Well, I'm not sure why they decided not to take the religion question, but it was apparent throughout the argument that even though as a technical matter they're not going to decide and can't decide the case on religious freedom grounds, this is understood to be religiously motivated speech. And of course, everybody understands that's part of what sets this up in a conservative, liberal, ideological space, so that the conservatives come in sympathetic to the claimant and the liberals come in sympathetic to the state, that might not necessarily be the political valence if we imagined a very different law under very different circumstances with different speakers. But the religious dimension of it, I think, is below the surface, if not expressly part of the case. There was a lot of discussion about race discrimination here. The liberal justices expressed concern that this argument would open the door to discrimination on the basis of race or disability. Justice Sotomayor said, how about people who don't believe in interracial marriage or about people who don't believe that disabled people should get married? Where is the line? That is a question. Where is the line here? Yeah, so that's right. There were a whole series of hypothetical examples. One that Justice Jackson gave, which I think was intriguing, was she imagined a Santa Claus in a mall who takes photos with children. And the Santa Claus takes photographs with children of all races, 
which says that there's a certain kind of photograph, a sort of it's a wonderful life kind of photograph that he only takes with white children because it's got a sort of nostalgic element and that's part of his artistic expression. So it's not that he doesn't serve African-American children, but he excludes them from that. And presumably a Colorado-style public accommodations law would say, well, you can't do that. And the argument of the petitioner here would say, well, that Santa Claus gets to exclude the African-American children from that kind of photograph, which seems problematic. Justice Alito countered with his own Santa Claus example. So he imagined an African-American Santa Claus at the other end of the mall and a uh, child who wants to be photographed in a uh, Ku Klux Klan outfit. And the point of his example, I think, was to generate the intuition that the African-American Santa Claus shouldn't have to do that. And I I thought there was a good response to that that got kind of washed over pretty quickly, which was that there is no public accommodations law saying you have to serve people even if they're in Klan outfits, at least not in Colorado and not at the federal level. Now, it's true that there are some state laws that say you can't discriminate in your business on the basis of the politics or ideology of your customers. And so maybe in one of those states, that law would mean that the African-American Santa Claus would have to take the photo with the child in the Klan outfit. But you might say, and I would be inclined to say, that the state doesn't have the same compelling interest in forbidding discrimination on the basis of political viewpoint that it does in preventing the discrimination on the basis of an identity characteristic such as race, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, or disability. After all, you can always go into the store and, you know, take off your MAGA hat or your ACLU pin if you're worried about viewpoint discrimination. Uh, You can't, you know, change who you are in these other settings, nor should you have to, even if you can, you know, be closeted for purposes of getting service. Yeah, I mean, there were so many hypotheticals and some, for example, what happens if an architect whose work is expressive refuses to work for black customers? I mean, none of those were answered sufficiently. I think that's right. So I I think it's very tempting to want to go where David Cole, the national legal director of the ACLU, went in a brief that the ACLU filed and in a New York Times op-ed that he published under his own name, which is to say that none of these claims really should get off the ground. Of course, you have a right to free speech, but when you go out into the marketplace and offer your services, you're going to have to take some lumps because otherwise everybody in virtually any trade or craft is going to say that there's some expressive element, right? Think about a bartender. Sure, a bartender just provides drinks, but we know that part of being a bartender is talking to the patrons at the bar. And you might not want to engage in certain conversations with certain people because you'll have to express views that are polite and therefore could be taken as endorsing their lifestyle or whatever it is. So if the court goes down this road and wants to say, well, there's some occupations, some services, some goods that are more inherently expressive than others, it's going to have a lot of cases for a long time trying to draw those lines. Why do you think the justices took this case over the rights of same-sex couples at a time when there's so much concern that the court will reverse the right to same-sex marriage just as it reversed the right to abortion? I mean, that's the reason for the same-sex marriage bill. I think they took it for at least two sorts of reasons. One is that the timing is somewhat accidental. This was an issue that they did want to address in 2017. They punted then, and it's sort of been around 
since then. And that was from before the court's decision overruling Roe v. Wade and thus raising the possibility of the overruling of other cases, including Obergefell against Hodges, the case recognizing a right to same-sex marriage. The second reason, though, I think is that especially the conservative justices on this court want to limit the scope of LGBTQ plus equality, at least insofar as they see it infringing on conservative religious lifestyles. There's a line in Justice Kennedy's majority opinion in the Obergefell case in which he says that many people oppose same-sex marriage based on honorable and decent religious or philosophical principles. Now, when Justice Kennedy wrote that, Justice Alito in dissent mocked it as saying, well, sure, you're saying that they're entitled to have these principles, they're just not entitled to act on them. But since then, he and some of the other conservative justices have sort of taken that up as a banner to say, well, if it's decent and honorable, then people should be able to opt out, that wanting to oppose same-sex marriage is not the same thing, it's not morally equivalent to race discrimination, and so they want to sort of carve a hole in anti-discrimination law. Indeed, you might even look at Justice Gorsuch, who, after all, wrote the court's opinion in the 2020 case, finding that discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity are forbidden by the federal employment anti-discrimination law, that having sort of established his bona fides as not a homophobe or a transphobe in those cases, he now wants to say, but don't worry, I'm going to give something to the other side by giving this carve out for religiously motivated expression or uh, opposition. Justice Sotomayor said ruling for the web designer here would be the first time in Supreme Court history to allow a business open to the general public to refuse to serve a customer based on race, sex, religion, or sexual orientation. So how do the conservatives make a carve-out that doesn't characterize this as inviting business to be exempt from civil rights laws? Well, so, I mean, she's right, but only because we define you know, that narrowly. After all, in the Hobby Lobby case, and I believe it was 2013, the court gave a carve out from statute and regulations requiring the provision of health insurance that covers contraception to religiously motivated business owners. Now, that was in the context of employment rather than public accommodations, but it's also a carve out from anti-discrimination law also based in sort of conservative religious principles. Part of the reason the court would be doing this for the first time, I think, is because it's the first time they're addressing it in this specific context, although I do think Justice Sotomayor is right, hearkening back to those cases from the 1960s and 70s in which they dismiss the proposed exceptions with respect to race. But I think the answer to the question of how does the court prevent people from perceiving this as them, you know, taking sides, you know, against anti-discrimination law is that they can't, right? They can't control how their decisions are perceived. I actually would share that perception. I'm, you know, I'm sympathetic to the position articulated by Justice Sotomayor, but I think this court has shown that they're not all that attuned to or concerned about how the public perceives them. I mean, Chief Justice Roberts seemed more concerned about that early in his career and maybe still is, but he's lost control of this court. I know you can't get everything from these oral arguments, but what do you see as the result here? I think it's likely that 323 Creative and Ms. Smith, the owner of the web design company, will win. 
I think that Chief Justice Roberts will either write the opinion himself or try to assign it to one of his colleagues, likely Justice Barrett or Justice Kavanaugh, who he thinks will write a somewhat narrow opinion that doesn't open the door to the complete gutting of anti-discrimination law, at least not initially. But exactly what distinctions they draw is hard to predict at this point. You know, depending on how they write it, this becomes a question that's going to be litigated over and over, isn't it? It's it's oh, opening absolutely. the door. Yes, sure. For the most part, claims like this have lost in the lower courts. But if the web designer wins in the Supreme Court, even in a relatively narrow way, there will then be a large number of cases of this sort posing all sorts of difficult questions, right? One will be about, you know, are florists like web designers? If they're not, what about bakers? What about, you know, the difference between a bespoke website and one off the rack, right? So there are very many questions that will be left open. And as Alexis de Tocqueville pointed out in the early 19th century when he visited America, in America, the open questions become legal questions and they're all going to be litigated. So then if this decision comes out as you expect it to, what does this mean for LGBTQ rights? It's open season on LGBTQ rights? I mean, no, I don't think so. I think, I think it's still going to be true that the vast majority of, let's say, same-sex couples looking for wedding services will find them, especially because people tend to clump geographically in places that are sympathetic. So, you know, the people who will be most hurt by this are same-sex couples and LGBTQ plus individuals living outside of major metropolitan areas in places that are not sympathetic to their rights, and they will face discrimination there. Although the truth is that they might face discrimination there already, because the law is hardly perfect at changing people's attitudes. This um, struck me. The web designer hasn't even tried to start a wedding website business yet. So why does she have standing? And it seems like it's one of those cases being brought to bring this issue to the court. Yeah, that, that was a threshold question. It does seem like it's sort of made up, uh, both because she hasn't entered the business yet. It was done on stipulated facts. Justice Thomas asked that question at the beginning of the case, and there is sort of a technical way around it. But it does, it does have that kind of air of unreality. It seems unreal to me in another way, which is I don't see how she's going to make any money on this website anyway. <laughs> if, you just, if, you, if you just go online and Google wedding websites, you'll find half a dozen services that allow you to create your own website in about 15 minutes for free, and they look very professional. Um, so why someone is going to go to this person to, you know, to have her services for a fee is a mystery to me. Thanks so much, Mike. That's Professor Michael Dorf of Cornell Law School. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. 
Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The fate of grocery store workers seems to be a pivotal factor in the Federal Trade Commission's decision on whether to sue to block Kroger's $24.6 billion acquisition of Albertsons. The labor concerns surrounding the merger were underscored at a Senate hearing this week where Kroger's CEO made promises not to lay off, quote, frontline workers. Joining me is Bloomberg Law reporter Dan Paskin. Dan, tell us a little about this proposed merger. So Kroger and Albertsons, which are two of the largest grocery companies in the U.S., they are the second and fourth largest in the country in terms of where Americans buy their groceries. So Walmart, but it's also Amazon, is competing with them. Kroger announced a couple months ago it's going to buy Albertsons um, for almost $25 billion. And regulators and some of the public and advocacy groups are concerned that the deal could basically concentrate the market for groceries in certain parts of the country where there aren't that many stores and where Kroger and Albertson stores like Safeway and Harris Teeter are the only ones in town. Has Albertson's promised that stores won't be closed, that they'll be sold? Is that part of the deal? Yes. So as part of the proposed deal, Kroger and Albertsons are offering to spin off up to about 600, 650 stores, um, probably around 375 right now, um, basically to assuage concerns that it would concentrate the market. And it's basically a move to forestall a Federal Trade Commission challenge to the deal. And yes, in a Senate hearing uh, last week, the CEO of Kroger committed to not close stores, distribution centers, or manufacturing facilities as a result of the merger. We've seen antitrust regulators focus recently on concerns about labor with mergers or acquisitions. So tell us what the concern is here about labor. Yeah. So in the last few years, labor has become a much more significant part of merger review and antitrust in general. It's not just about product markets anymore. It's also about, you know, where you and I work. And so here there's a concern that if you have several stores in a town or a city um, where grocery workers work and the merger goes through, all of those stores could be owned by the new Kroger Albertsons company, the merged company. And so workers, typically when, when mergers go through, stores are closed, there are layoffs because you can save money by laying off like extra workers. And so lawmakers and specifically the, the union that represents over 100,000 
Kroger and Albertsons workers are concerned that despite kind of what the CEOs said at this hearing last week, uh, there could still be layoffs. There could still be um, decreased circumstances for promotions. Pay could be suppressed because when you think about it, um, if I work at, at a Kroger store, and um, I want to get a raise, maybe the best way for me to get a raise isn't to keep working at the Kroger store, but it's to get hired at an Albertson store or somewhere else where they'll pay me more. And so when you don't have that kind of threat of losing your employees to a competitor, uh, you're much less incentivized to raise their wages you know, every so often, give them a raise. At the Senate hearing, the Kroger CEO promised to refrain from laying off, quote, frontline workers. So yes. what did he mean by frontline a good question. Um, he was referring to kind of the, the frontline workers that we've talked about all pandemic, and he was pressed on it by a couple of different senators to kind of say, will you not lay off any workers? And he wouldn't say that, um, which the implication being that kind of more staffing and managerial roles could be affected or people at headquarters. But it's hard to say exactly, like, we don't know exactly what he meant. He didn't offer a kind of a clear definition of frontline. So it's, it's hard to say. And the union, like I said, is, is concerned that even that isn't um, a guarantee. This focus of the FTC, does it come from the Biden administration's support of unions? Yes and no. Um, in 2016, the DOJ and the FTC came out with new guidance that they would be going after what are called no-poach cases and treating them as criminal cases, which is basically agreements between employers not to hire each other's workers. So. There, there's evidence that like this overall interest in labor goes beyond the Biden administration. That was at the end of the Obama administration into the Trump administration when that happens. But yes, this kind of specific focus on workers is very much under uh, FTC Chair Lena Khan and DOJ Antitrust Division Assistant Attorney General Jonathan Cantor. Um, they've both said it's a big priority for them, and it's very much in line with the overall Biden administration focus on, on labor and on competition. So the Justice Department was successful recently in blocking Penguin Random House's $2.18 billion acquisition of Simon & Schuster. And the focus there was on the authors who might lose lucrative contracts and advances because of a deal. Is that different from trying to focus on supermarket workers? It's actually pretty similar, and that's a really good comparison. So, I mean, yes, they are at opposite ends of the economic spectrum in terms of income and and kind of form of labor. But they're both cases that kind of could indicate a focus on labor. Um, The publisher's case is actually the first big murder challenge we've seen, or at least the first one in a while, that has focused primarily on labor. There were other arguments there, but DOJ really leaned on kind of the effect on authors. So yeah, they're they're similar. And there are, I mean, you can't compare them perfectly. the the group of authors who make kind of the amount of money and the books um, that would have been affected by the Penguin Random House deal are nowhere in the economic bracket of grocery store workers. And grocery store workers can work in other places. They're not limited to just buying groceries at at Kroger, for example. But no, there are absolutely comparisons. And the overall focus is similar. Could the FTC decide to go after this merger just based on its effect on labor markets? That's pretty unlikely. Um, And we probably won't see a challenge really with any specific allegations about labor markets. We won't see a kind of a Sherman Act or Clayton Act 
um, charge saying this would concentrate the the labor market in Los Angeles or in Washington. Um, what it will do is, uh, sources told me it's likely to kind of influence how the FTC analyzes the deal right now before it actually files a challenge. And during these, the kind of the merger review process before an agency decides to sue or not, um, they're meeting with the lawyers for um, both companies. And it's likely influencing the FTC to kind of not take company promises that, like, they won't close stores uh, for granted. And often, kind of, those are the sorts of things companies will point out as reasons to let the deal go through. Like, these are kind of savings that are good for the economy and that we can um, we can translate the savings to customers, right? They, you won't pay much, as much at the cash register. And it basically means uh, the FTC's focus on labor basically means the companies probably can't make those commitments because the FTC won't see them as a good thing. So they're kind of forestalled in those defenses, what we call an efficiencies defense. It definitely means the FTC is scrutinizing this harder than it would be other ones. How does Albertson's acquisition in 2015 of Safeway affect the thinking here or you know, the thinking of those who are opposing this? Yeah, so in 2015, Albertson's uh, purchased Safeway, which is a pretty significant, pretty large um, brand, and as part of the deal, the FTC let it go through and for, uh, required that Albertson spin off, I believe it was 169 or 168 stores. Most of those went to uh, a regional grocery chain called Hagen's, which I believe is in the Pacific Northwest. And um, within a year, Hagen's declared bankruptcy and sold 33 of the stores back uh, to Albertson's at a massive discount. So Albertson's actually made money on the stores that it divested and then bought back. They purchased them for so little. Uh, one of my sources called it like a, a poster child for bad merger review uh-huh. because the FTC, according to at least advocates and now Chair Lena Khan, made a mistake in letting that deal go through, at least with the, the divestiture that it required because Higgins couldn't handle the additional stores and Albertson benefited at the end of the day. Um, and we talked to several union members who had friends who were laid off or coworkers, and there was a union press conference where members talked about like, going through layoffs uh, as a result of that as well. So the FTC is definitely aware of what went wrong seven years ago, um, and that's going to make both them and Oversight way more interested in a stronger pushback here. Thanks, Dan. That's Bloomberg Law reporter Dan Paskin. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.